Coming up on the Assassins Podcast, we've got Raj Suri, CEO and co-founder of Presto, previously the co-founder at Lyft, joining the show to talk about the customer insight that led to starting Zimride, aka Lyft, those fork-in-the-road moments that have defined Raj's career as an entrepreneur, the thought process that led Raj to drop out of MIT to wait tables in a restaurant that ultimately led to finding Presto, and Raj's decision to take Presto public, what that process looks like, and we rounded out with Presto's position as an anti-metaverse idea and opportunities for automation in the physical world. This is a full episode. Raj is a brilliant guy. All right, without further ado, let's get into the show. Assassins, giddy up. See them dollar signs, grind. Assassin's state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs, assassin's state of mind. Assassin's state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line. Assassin's state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs, assassin's state of mind. Assassin's state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line. Assassin's state of mind. They say money over everything, everything, nation the game. What is going on, everybody? Happy Friday. It's your host, Justin Vandehey, here at the Assassin's Podcast, where every week we have founders on the show talking about their journeys going from zero to one. This week on the podcast, we've got a special guest. He's a serial entrepreneur, previously the co-founder of Zimride, which ultimately became Lyft, and he is now the CEO and co-founder of a really remarkable company helping restaurants solve most of their operational challenges in Presto. Raj Suri, CEO and founder of Presto, welcome to the Assassin's Podcast. Thanks, Justin. So excited to be here. I lead with the WrestleMania-type intro, but I thought I'd Mm -hmm. give you some space here in the beginning, yeah, just to share a little bit about your background and the journey to founding Presto. I also, like I, I called out, I know that you were really early at Lyft and would love to just also understand sort of what that journey was like from, from Lyft to, to Presto as well. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't have my weight team. I'm weighing in at, you know, what is it, 165, hopefully? Yeah, 165. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I started my entrepreneurial journey with, um, with Lyft. It was called Zimride at the time. And I just was graduating from University of Waterloo. I was doing a couple of degrees there, engineering and economics. And I'd already had, Waterloo is a really good program in that they give you like exposure to like uh, six different work opportunities. They call it co-op. So you, you, you study for four months and you work for four months. And I had gotten to the end of that, having worked at six different types of companies and realized who I was. You know, I, I kind of uh, discovered that I like environments which give me maximum freedom. And uh, I don't like working, at, I don't, I didn't work well with authority. You know, I, I, I was basically unemployable in many ways. I clashed with a lot of my bosses. And uh, the time where my boss had just told me to like, give me, threw me into the deep end and let me do my thing, I, I did the best. So uh, I kind of figured the entrepreneurial journey was the best for me at that time. And uh, I had a bunch of ideas. Like I actually had an idea for a Facebook-like company in, um, in 2004. This was before Facebook was created. And it was actually the same year Facebook was created. And it was mm-hmm. called Twiddle. And I had, and I was, was ready to get started. I had the choice of either staying in my program or like dropping out and starting this company. I made the wrong decision. I stayed in my program. So I, I already was kind of seeing the journey. I see Facebook, you know, I, the next year, kind of take a very similar idea and, and do it very well. I was like, geez, 
what, what a missed opportunity, right? And I had the idea for, for Zipride slash Lyft when I was driving back from Waterloo to Toronto. And, you know, it's a one and a half hour drive. And it's a very common drive for people to do because most people live in Toronto. They don't live in Waterloo. And I, w- I would drive with an empty car. And I, w- I was like, how many students needed a ride to Toronto to, for this long weekend? And I'm here. I have to pay off for gas all my, by myself. I could be, you know, getting to know some other cool students in Waterloo. And just a huge missed opportunity. Like empty cars seem like a big missed opportunity in general. And so th- that was the genesis. Like, why hasn't someone solved this problem? And with the internet and with especially social networks, which were becoming big, and this is not 2007, uh, they were starting to become big and you realize, well, there's trust you can actually build on the internet. And so you can get to know people. And so I can find rights on the internet. So that was the genesis. And, and I started doing some research over like what else is out there. And I found a website that was created by a guy, uh, Logan Green, who is the current CEO of uh, Lyft. And, and you know, he started building something and I'm like, well, this is something similar to what I wanted to build. And I just reached out to him and we just did a, I just cold called him and he was in Santa Barbara. I was in cold Waterloo and we just hit it off really well. And we became instant friends and we were the same age. He was, uh, you know, last year of school as well. And, uh, we decided to work together. So that, that, that's how it started. And instead of doing this backpacking around Europe tour, like everyone else does after school, I just, I just stayed home and coded, you know, for that whole time after school, I just like built stuff and worked on this idea of, of Zimmer, which Zimmer edition was a carpooling idea. So how do you find people to carpool with? I'd also gone to MIT at the time for this joint PhD MBA program, very unique program. Only like three or four people in the world were accepted into it. And it was a free ride. You basically get a PhD and MBA fully paid for. Very unique opportunity. So anyways, uh, we, we built this. We, we, we ended up getting uh, some funding from Facebook. We brought in John Zimmer, who's the current president. Uh, we, we got investment from Sean Ogerall, who was the current chairman. All these guys are friends today. And I, I went to MIT because I couldn't give up this opportunity, which was, you know, getting a very unique opportunity. Again, right, another fork in the road. Do you, you, you stay with the opportunity or do you take this, another thing that's right in front of you? And, you know, I was pretty busy at MIT doing my academic path as well. And uh, along, the, along the journey, I also had the idea for Presto. So I, I had then three options. I, you know, do I start a new company with Presto? Do I stay with Lyft as a co-founder or do I stay with my path at MIT? And um, at that time, Lyft was a, initially like a, an app on the Facebook app store. If you remember these times in 2007, mm-hmm. there was a like huge craze around it, but then it kind of faded pretty quick, right? It, like within a year, the app store kind of died at Facebook. And so the other co-founders wanted to pivot to this other idea, which was, it was really this, uh, like selling enterprise software to universities for car, to help them help students carpool. I wasn't interested in the B2B idea. I wanted to do something that was much more consumer facing and also something that involved hardware, which Presto did because I just was more fun to work on. So I, I went in and dropped out of MIT, left Zimride and started Presto. And, and that's where my journey started there. Presto 2008 in, in the recession times, end of the world times, kind of similar to where we are today. So first observation, it sounds like you just, you build things in hard ass categories to build, <laughs> like just taking these challenges head on, which I love. And you talked about hardware and you often hear investors and entrepreneurs suggest to stay clear of ventures that have a physical hardware component because hardware is hard. And with Presto in particular, I was just curious to get your perspective on like, how did you think about both capitalizing Presto in the early days to solve some of those challenges? And what was, I guess, the initial insight around Presto as a company to say, this is the thing I'm going in on? Yeah, great question. Let me start with the initial insight. 
So the initial insight with Presto is I, I had a dinner at MIT when I was there uh, with several other MIT engineers and some Harvard economists and some really sh- smart people at a place in Harvard Square. We had a great dinner and then it came time for us to split the check between us. There were seven of us and it ended up just becoming this nightmare. Some people got the expensive stuff. Some people got the cheap stuff. Some people had cash and credit card. Some people were European. They didn't know how much to tip. Some people were American. And we took an hour to try to figure out how to split this check. And we realized we made a huge mistake and had to start the whole thing over again. It was just like slapstick type of thing. It was like, how many MIT engineers does it take to split a check? And uh, what I realized at that time was like, restaurants are everywhere. Uh, you know, I've grown up around the world. I've grown up in the Middle East and UK, born in Canada originally. And, I, and, and restaurants are the same everywhere. And they had the same problems. And it's a huge market. Everyone has to eat. And yet they're so broken, right? They're, they're, the experiences have so much inefficiencies in them. And it felt like if you could solve these problems for restaurants, you could actually unlock a ton of value. And you would have to do that with hardware because there's no way to deliver software to, to the physical world without hardware. And at that time, the, the, the iPad had not come out. So there was no idea of tablets. But the idea that we had was putting tablets on the tables, so uh, which we called at that time mobile touchscreen devices, so that guests could order their own food, they could pay for their check, they could split the check, they could even entertain themselves, they could see pictures of the menu items, they could provide feedback. All these things in one single device, basically an iPhone for restaurants at the table. And it was, um, it was a very unique insight. I felt like something I needed to do. And it was more fun than my PhD would be at MIT uh, or this pivot that Zimride Lyft was making at the time. So I, I dropped out of my program at MIT and uh, took a job as a waiter at a local restaurant to understand how restaurants work. So I spent the next year and a half, 16 hours a day inside a restaurant, a couple of different restaurants in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area. I'm trying to think of how that conversation would go with my parents. If I said, you know what, I'm, I'm dropping on MIT to go work at a restaurant. I think, I think they might permanently disown me at that point. Like, it didn't have the conviction to just make yeah. that leap. Anyway, I just wanted to not to, inter- apologies for interrupting you, but that was, that's such a stellar quote from just not losing sight of that. And look, my parents are Indian parents. They wanted me to be a doctor from a very yeah. young, young age. I have, to, I have to give them the credit, though. I, I think they, you know, they, they let me pursue what I wanted to pursue. My dad has worked the same job his entire life. You know, basically, recently retired, but he was just the same. Making a salary at big oil companies is kind of his thing, right? And uh, so a very different career path. But they kind of knew that I had this thing where I got bored easily. And like I was unhappy doing things when I was bored. And so I wanted big challenges in my life. And I think they, they respected that to let me do my thing, which you know, not all Indian parents do for sure. And yeah. so I got a bit lucky on that front. And I always felt I have the advantage. And I think all entrepreneurs, a middle-class background, I had a safety net and um, so everything really collapsed. I still had a, an undergrad degree. I also had my parents. I, I never looked back though. Like when I started at Presto, there was never a single moment of regret. Like what if I stayed in school? Or what if I stayed at Zimride Lift? There were never a single moment of regret because the path I've, I've gone on has been very rewarding and and, um, and fun. I think it's the, the fun part is really important. Like when you're a smart person or a hardworking person and there, there's so many opportunities, you really have limited downside. So why not go ahead and do something that maximizes the upside? Because your downside is very limited. So for me, there was never any, any there were tons of people who warned me not to do it. At the, in 2008, like Lehman Brothers collapsed, you can imagine nobody understood what I was doing, especially my peers at MIT. There was a ton of people telling me not to do what I was doing. And I have this thing though, when people tell me not to do it, I get more excited. Maybe it's a fatal flaw. It's like they're daring me to do it. And actually when I had the idea at the dinner table, I, I immediately 
talked about the idea. I said, I'm with, Hey, this is a big problem. I'm going to start a company to solve it. And everyone laughed at me, but then there was no, there was nothing that could have got me more excited. The next day I wrote the business plan for the idea. So it was very clear to me that this is something that was exciting to do. As far as sort of the first key hires that you made mm-hmm. for areas, maybe that you didn't have as much expertise in either like on the hardware side. How did you think about sort of building out your founding team in the early days? And were there any sort of interesting observations or reflections that you had as you built out sort of your core team when you were going from that zero to one phase? Yeah, I made a lot of mistakes, but back in the day, I mean, because I'd been on the entrepreneurial thought pattern for the last two or three years, I've I've been trying to mark out people who I thought would be good colleagues for the last two years. So you know, at MIT, sometimes in my spare time, like I wouldn't go to class. I wouldn't just walk around the hallways, just go to the talks and try to talk to people after the talks, especially entrepreneurial talks to see who would, who could I recruit to one day be a co-founder or, or like a, you know, staff. Because I was already working on Lyft at that time. So it, it was for me, I had already had the recruiting mindset. And so I, there's a set of people out there who love risk, very small set, I would say at MIT and Waterloo. Uh, Waterloo more so than MIT, there's a bigger set there, but most people just want to get a job when they graduate and consulting or even MIT, you would be very surprised. Like the, one of the most limited downsides in the planet, right? Like an MIT grad and, and most people are very conservative still. So you would think at like, you know, half of MIT would be starting companies. It's less than like 1%, right? It's like people start companies at MIT. So I might've changed since I left, but when I was there, it was a very conservative place. So I was always trying to find up my tribe there. And it turned out the people who wrote the first check into MIT, into a company at Presto was another MIT grad who was just a year below me there. And he's now the chairman of the board at, at uh, Presto. So he continued to build a, you know, a large position over Presto, invested half a dozen to a dozen, a dozen times. So the people I met then are still involved today in many ways. When you're finding co-founders and, and early employees, what I did was I just helped watch for people I know who are smart and hardworking and like risk. I didn't really hire too many people who I didn't know, but eventually I, I, there were some skills which are out of my network. So like designers, there's certain areas of computer science that I didn't have a background in. I actually mostly found remote workers for that, which a lot of people don't recommend, but they were cheap and they were easy to find on the internet. And I could judge their skills easily because I could work with them quickly and I could cut them off quickly if I needed to, if they didn't work out. I stubbed my toe a couple of times, but actually some of the people I recruited, again, are still working with us today. And, you know, 15, 14 years later, some of them are still there. And some of them, we actually got a visa for it. And now are citizens of the U.S. We flew them from some other remote country, Eastern Europe or like South America. We, we've ne- they're now settled here in the U.S. Back in the early 2010s, it was actually easier to do that, do that than it is now. So, yeah, I mean, just being resourceful, I think, right? Just trying to always think about who could help fill out the team. Finding people who didn't want to, who didn't mind taking a, a swing, I think, were, was a key thing. I saw that you so successfully took uh, Presto Public this year. Congratulations. That's massive. What went into the decision to take Presto Public? And was that always sort of the goal that you had when you started the company? I know things change, obviously, over the course of 15 years. Yeah, good question. Uh, look, for me, public was never, going public is never a destination. It's a strategy. It's a, it's a capital strategy. For us, I, th- I think going public makes a lot of sense. And we went public in probably the worst possible stock market since I started the company, right? Which is a very ironic. It was kind of a full circle thing. I started, the, our corporation day was October 12th, 2008. So it's like the most bearish time you can imagine. And we went public September 26th, I think, something like that in 2022. One of the most bearish times ever as well. But for me, that never, the bearish time doesn't really scare me at all. It, for us, it made sense as a strategy because 
we work with big restaurant chains who are often public and they like to see their, their technology providers have some heft, especially when we're powering huge percentage of their orders and payments. So, you know, in many cases we power over 90% of their payments. So being a public company gives us some buffer that we need, you know, for other companies to trust us and to make sure that they can feel safe that, you know, we, we are under some kind of regulations and, and some financial transparency. So I think it's really helped us commercially. It's accelerated commercial growth. Was it a destination? No, it was never a destination. The goal for both companies was always maximum impact. Like, what, what can we do to, to help the most number of people in these industries and make money and have fun around the way, right? But because if you don't make money, you're not going to keep, you're not going to keep having fun. It's going to be quite miserable. So you got to, you know, that's a key constraint and do it the right way too. Like be proud of your work, be proud of your products that you're putting out there. So it's, it's just another step in, in the right direction. It's, it's not the end goal by any means. And uh, Presto still has a long way to go. I think the basic idea behind Presto is it's almost like this anti-metaverse idea. It's about like overlaying next-gen digital technology onto the physical world. So instead of pulling you out of the, the, the physical world to kind of live in the virtual world, we believe that people like to live in a physical world and you just can't eat in the metaverse. So you have to eat in the physical world. How can you make that experience better with technology? And this intersection between physical and digital is what really gets us success. And we think that's a massive, massive opportunity. It's a trillion dollar opportunity. And, and there's no company that dominates that today. No Presto could be that if we do the right things. It's such a good segue into this next question I had for you. I don't know if I made this connection earlier, but I used to work, I was the one of the first sales hires at a company called Nomi. We were in the physical world analytics space. So we worked with mm-hmm. a lot of big box retailers that were doing, we did Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and camera-based analytics. And we had a, I had a couple of QSR uh, customers. I think we worked with like Panera and there were some others. And that whole idea of bridging the physical and digital worlds, I saw firsthand. There's so much there and it feels like it's so it's still early yet. Like there's so much growth and opportunity to truly to do that. And I guess related to that, on an earlier podcast episode, I featured a company called Artly, which was a, a barista b- robot that basically their claim to fame is they make the perfect cup of coffee. And so there's also a lot of really interesting things on the future of automation and AI in QSR and hospitality. What else do you see on the horizon for Presto? Are there other kind of trends or areas that you're thinking about? Yeah. So right now we're very focused on this drive-through automation space where we're using uh, voice AI and computer vision combined in many ways to um, automate all orders and payments and drive-throughs. Drive-throughs make up 70% of most QSR's sales. So it's the most important channel. In the pandemic, it became even more important. And yet it's very inefficient and it's, it's not smart at all. Compare like a drive-through to, you know, a website. A, w- a website knows everything about you every time you log in, can present your favorites so it's easy to reorder. It can be really fast because it has all your payment information there. So you can click order what you, like on Amazon, it can be a one-click order, right? On, in a drive-through, you have to wait in line behind a bunch of cars. It can be a very poor experience when you order. You don't know who the person you're talking to. They can ask you to wait sometimes. It's hard to understand them sometimes. And, and it costs labor every time to take an order, right? It, it, it actually costs the restaurant a lot of money. And labor continues to be more short. It continues to be more constrained in this country. People don't want to work in restaurants anymore. There's so many gig economy opportunities, including Lyft, by the way, right? Like there's a, a lot of these opportunities have emerged for, for lower wage staff. And so restaurants are struggling to find people. Customers are not happy with their experience. AI can help both those problems. With voice AI, you can take all orders, 95% of orders without human intervention. 
with, with computer vision, you can recognize cars as they're coming to the drive-thru. And so you can customize your greetings. You can actually pull up people's past orders. You know exactly how Justin likes his burger cooked. And the fact that three out of every five times, he orders chocolate shakes. So I know how to upsell him to get him to get the chocolate shake. And so the restaurant makes more money per guest. You can actually have a faster experience because I can have Justin's credit card information on file and your favorite orders. You can, you can save five to 10 labor hours a day because you don't need to have staff to man the drive-thru anymore, you know, except to prepare the food. The guest overall is happier. The, the restaurant makes more money and they save money on, on labor. So it's uh, the automated drive-thru is something we're really excited about. Today, there's 200,000 drive-thrus in the US. Today, less than a thousand of them are automated. Presto is a leader in that space. We think within the next two years, tens of thousands will, will be automated. And we think within the next five years, Justin, it's going to be really hard to find any drive-thru that's not automated because the ROI is tremendous. It makes sense for the guest, the staff, the restaurant, and it's just going to be an overall improvement for the millions of drive-thru orders that happen every day here in this country. It's scary to think about how much more of my paycheck is probably going to go to an automated Starbucks right now. I just think about my mm-hmm. already. It's probably around a 70% allocation with the amount of food I buy for my kids through the Starbucks drive-thru. If there's any more automation in that experience, I'm going to be looking for a job next year. I think that's that's the sad reality of where we're at. It's coming but, to every, every space. I mean, uh, I was at a hotel in, in Mexico a couple of weeks ago, and they were doing you know, text message service. So if you need something, you text them, right? That whole space is going to be AI too. AI is coming to every physical industry, cruise ships, casinos, stadiums, even healthcare. All these industries are going to be tra- transformed dramatically with automation and, and uh, AI because it, the labor just isn't, isn't there anymore. People aren't having as many kids as before. There's, immigrants are slowing down to the country. I mean, both parties seem to not be pushing to bring in Im- immigrants right now. And it's, it's, it's a scenario which really ripe for automation. So I've, I've been asking this question of serial entrepreneurs. What's one thing that Raj, the co-founder of Presto, would offer as advice to Raj, the co-founder of Zimride Lift? Oh man, there's no shortage, isn't there? Right? Like there's like, uh, when you begin in your journey, you know, you think you know it all, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, a billionth of what you need to know. Um, there, there, there's a lot. I, I think the importance of big markets is one that I, I would kind of crystallize things. You know, I think there are a lot of things, probably the mistakes I made early on was like working on uh, things that are fun to do on a technical basis and a fun product to build that is very tangible. I always tend to work on, on consumer-facing stuff. Uh, for me, that's a bias of mine. I'm not, I just don't want to make money. I want to actually change how people live, which is, I think, I think that's the right instinct, but it's about like, make sure that you work on the biggest markets available and you really, you're laser focused on that. That's the business instinct that needs to come along with the, the technology and product instinct, which I think I have already, but I think you need to have a business instinct too. And um, really being disciplined on market sizes because as an entrepreneur, if you want to have the maximum impact, you need to go after the biggest market. So we're rounding out here, but I wanted to also give you the space to see if there was anything else that you wanted to plug or any, uh, yeah, I don't know if there was anything else that you're jamming on that you wanted to, to share with the listeners. Uh, no, not yet. I mean, I think we're, we're excited about what we're building at Presto and I'm just very excited about automation overall. I'm not here plugging anything. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to share the story. And look, I, I think, you know, one thing I do is uh, I like to angel invest and, uh, you know, help out other founders too. So if, if there are founders out there who are, who are working on something great in a space I'm interested in, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to ideas. Well, Raj, appreciate you. Thanks for jumping on the show and hopefully have to have you back on here sometime in the not so long future. Absolutely, Justin. It's a great show. So keep up the good work. All right. That 
is a wrap. Again, big shout out to Raj, the team at Presto. I still can't believe he dropped that MIT to wait tables. That is insane. It took some stones, but pretty cool to hear that founder story and what it what it ultimately became to building two incredible companies. So this upcoming Friday on the podcast, we've got another really great guest. He is currently the CEO of an earlier stage company, but previously founded one of the largest tech companies in New York, publicly traded company. He's an awesome guy. It's going to be a great episode. In the meantime, I'm excited for my partner in crime, Kayla, to get back. I've been solo parenting for the week, so my God, please get home. (laughs) For all the listeners out there, appreciate you tuning in. Keep hustling. Keep grinding. Just keep getting that money. Assassin's state of mind. Hustle, grind. See them dollar signs. Assassin's state of mind. Assassin's state of mind. Hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line. Assassin's state of mind. Hustle, grind. See them dollar signs. Assassin's state of mind. Assassin's state of mind. Hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line. Assassin's state of mind. They say money over everything. Everything. Gation the game. For a wedding ring, salary, startups, crypto, stock exchange Appreciate every penny, pocket change One phone call and your life can change What's your love language? Can't do business if it ain't reciprocated